is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Welcome. Episode 2 was recorded on the 26th of October 2021, and in this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Stephanie Nevin, Global Sustainable Equity Portfolio Manager at 91. Now, Stephanie runs a fund out of London in the UK and has taken a keen focus on corporate culture. So through this interview, we'll be discussing not only some of the trends she sees occurring in this space, but also how culture impacts stakeholders and the wider society. So Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on as a guest. And I I think what we're about to talk about is a really important topic. It's something I think needs to be talked about far more. And I think it's something that actually, as we dig into the kind of the nuances of this, people have very strong opinions on certain things. So that's going to be quite interesting to pull out. And of course, the topic we're talking about today is the importance of corporate culture. So before we kind of go into how you define culture, what it is, what it isn't, I really want to start just laying a very kind of simple background. And that's why is culture important to good business, not only from, let's say, an investment point of view, but can we broaden that out to how it delivers good to the wider society? Sure. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on. It's a great opportunity to really dive down and think really broadly about a concept I think is super important. So culture for us is something we've really elevated over the last couple of years. It's something that's been bubbling along in the back of my mind, in the back of our investment approaches here. And it's something that's really beginning to come to the forefront for how we're thinking about, as you say, not only how companies are viewed in an investment context, but how they interact with society much more broadly. And I think it's right at the start of, you know, a a real kind of transition. I think we're, we're beginning to move away from that very traditional kind of financial focus on very much that pure financial shareholder and that kind of very almost zero-sum approach to thinking about the primacy of that shareholder to thinking more broadly. And, and I think there's kind of three things that come out of there. So firstly, you come back to that, well, what is a company? What's its right to operate? Why does it exist? What's its purpose? And, you know, we can come back to that later on. And then you have the kind of, well, what has the investment community done with that? What is it focused on? Why is it really drilled down into this It's all about financial returns. It's all about the numbers. You know, that is the measure of success. And then we come to the sort of third point, which is really like, I see a sustainable future that really thinks much more about this multi-stakeholder approach that really kind of questions the primacy of one stakeholder over another. And it really sort of says, well, actually, you know what? We're not in the zero-sum game anymore. We've moved beyond that. There's much more of a holistic understanding of value creation. And we need new tools to effectively uncover the companies that do well in that in that world. And for us, culture is right at the vanguard of those new tools. 
So it's a new way of appraising. It's a new way of, you know, analysing, of, of trying to assess value that ends up moving away from that quantitative focus that we've been so familiar with into this hazy, more difficult to judge qualitative realm. And that's where I'm really excited because I think there's lots of great insights that we can continue to kind of uncover, pick apart and really connect companies to the societies in which they operate. Superb. So when we're thinking about culture, as I said, kind of in this broader context, would I be right in thinking, kind of to put some examples on this, that we could look at perhaps those companies that at the very start of the, the pandemic, they, they repurposed their tools and their manufacturing, they started producing PPE, or I think it was Coca-Cola, was it? You might be able to tell me on this. I think Coca-Cola had the last mile project, which was delivering vaccines in Africa because they already had distribution there. Are those kind of some of the things that we're talking about here when we're talking about corporate culture? Somewhat, yes. And it all comes down to how you define culture. So, and I think your your listeners today will all have very different ideas and they will really fall in a number of different camps. So you can think of culture as the set of values. So the what, the things that people, you know, would say they value and all of the kind of beliefs, I guess, that exist within that system. Or you could think of culture as a set of behaviours. So, you know, how do people interact? How do they behave when, you know, someone's not there? And And that kind of actually links into one of the more widely understood definitions of culture, which would be that that comes from Ben Horowitz, so the private equity investor who sort of says, well, you know what, culture's those decisions that are made when you're not there. So it's the things that happen, you know, behind your back. Well, actually, we would say the best way to understand culture, and this is what makes it accessible to the investment community, is to really think on think about the organisational structures. So it's about those workplace practices that exist within corporations and being able to assess them. And seeing companies with strong workplace practices gives them the ability to be nimble. And I think that's where you're getting at, because those companies who have good workplace practices are more on a nimble, not only in response to opportunities, so they see new ideas, they adapt, they put resources in the right place, they come up with innovation, but they also adapt well to threats or to risk. And that's something we've seen, in, in the, particularly in the, in the last sort of 18 months of COVID, where we've seen those companies with the stronger workplace practices have been more resilient in the face of, of COVID. Now, I'll give you an example on both sides, perhaps, so Thermo Fisher is a good example of a business that's had the nimbleness, and this is um, a medical devices business listed in the US, it's had the nimbleness within its employee base to see innovation opportunities and really put resources behind the COVID um, solution. And that's a great example of a business that's well set up to encourage all of its employees to act like owners, to feel that they have a utility function to the overall business and respond to effectively uh, the demand that COVID presented very suddenly. Or on the other side, you can see businesses who suddenly, you know, had to send their workforce, their workforce home and had employees very much operating away from the kind of reinforcement mechanisms of being in an office. So when you're in that office, you, you know, you're very clear that you're there to work and you have, you know, your, your colleagues sitting next to you and it's, you, you know, you're very much in a work zone. Whereas when you're at home, when you're suddenly, you know, when suddenly COVID kind of disrupts all of those structures, 
is those businesses that have good recognition systems, systems, good trust systems, good communication channels already in place that were able to take their employees out of the workplace, send them home, but still rely on that intrinsic motivation to continue to generate value and opportunity for its business model. Superb. So when we're actually talking about culture, you know, you've, you've identified a whole load of things there. But when we kind of step back from that, what was the process behind actually kind of getting to your definition of culture? Because I, I guess this is going to be one of the things that my definition of culture might be slightly yeah. different to every single listener as to yours. So what was the process behind kind of getting to that definition? And what are some of the, the main characteristics or metrics that, that you now look at? Sure. So for me, I've been an investor for 15 years now, and I've always had this sense that there's something beyond the numbers. So I've always looked at businesses, you know, made lovely models and written lovely reports, but I always felt there was something beyond that that I wasn't capturing. So I was looking at two businesses, they might ostensibly be very much in the same sector, you know, similar footprints, but there's something different about the degree to which they respond to opportunity and threat. And I couldn't pick apart what it was. Some of it was coming through in management. Some of it was coming through in capital allocation. Some of it was coming through in, you know, just the kind of employee interactions you might have almost on an ad hoc basis. And to me, it's become increasingly clear that it's something right at the heart of the business. And it's right at the heart of, of, of an increasing number of businesses because we're seeing that rise of human capital. So, you know, after the, over the last sort of five plus decades, we've seen this steady rise of intangibles on corporate balance sheets. And that's to some extent reflecting and it's reflecting that kind of uncaptured benefit of people in a company. Now, you hear CEOs, you hear company management, anyone from, you know, Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan to Jack Maher at Alibaba talking about people. So you hear that message coming through very loud and clearly from management. But it it's pretty much fallen on deaf ears on the in the investment community. You know, we've overlooked it, you know, investors are increasingly short term, they're increasingly looking at corporate earnings, uh, quarterly earnings. You know, we've seen that in the stats and the ever declining holding period that you see particularly in the US. And yet there's something in it, there's something for those long-term shareholders who want to engage with businesses to uncover and pick apart something. And so, you know, I, I came to 91. It's been a fantastic place thinking about, you know, sustainability. It has some fantastic sort of research hubs here and really thinking about being a centre of excellence for sustainability research. And we kicked off a project that sort of said, well, we want to understand culture and we want to understand how we can put it into an investment context. Because, you know, we're not just an, we're not an academic shop here. We are a commercial business. And what we care about is delivering value to our clients. So we need something where we can take culture, you know, that hazy concept, put it into an investment approach that makes sense for our stakeholders, our direct stakeholders, our clients, but broader society too, because we are a long-term orientated business. So it, it matters to us how we impact society as well. And we, we sort of said, well, you know, if we want to measure culture, we need to know what we're measuring. And we did a lot of work thinking about this definition. Now, we undertook a collaboration, and this collaboration was with Alex Edmonds. So he's a professor of finance at London Business School, and he's written a fantastic book called Grow the Pie, which I would very much recommend to your readers to go out and um, 
at least have a have a bit of a browse through because he sort of says in there, well, you know what? Let's look at the numbers. And he's done a, a study that shows that over a 30-year period, those businesses with strong culture outperform by 2.3 to 3.8% alpha every year. Okay, so there's a number of things within that statement. So firstly, his definition of culture came from his particular data set, which was the, the notes that came through on the Great Places to Work survey that's been running for many, many years in the US. So it's a great, consistent source of, of data. The alpha number that came out is really striking. And the reason it's striking is because we see a lot of academic papers, you know, uh, many of the quant shops in the, in the US publish these. And to, to be frank, that alpha signal that they tend to show in their papers is competed away before that, that paper is even published. And what's interesting about the work Alex has done is that A, the number, the, the alpha number is so significant, but B, that it persists over a very significant period of time. And more recently, some work has been done by one of the business schools in the south of France that replicate Alex's study and extend by a decade, and it shows the signal still holds. So what it means is that culture matters to businesses, and it's still there and not being priced in. So we would say, well, you know what, this is culture really showing that it's a driver of sustainable alpha. So we took that, we've taken that with the definition, we have that definition in place, we have the, the empirical research, and then we said, well, you know what, we want to use this in an investment context. Now, we had to build up a framework. So, and I'm sure you're going to ask me at some point, well, is this quantifiable? Well, I will tell you that in our belief, culture is not measurable, but it is analyzable. So there's no one metric here. There's no, you know, the culture score is seven, so you can buy it, or the culture score is two, so you should sell it. There's more value than a score can possibly give us at the moment. So we've had to build a framework, and that framework is something we've built up. It's been very sort of proprietary in the way we've we've constructed that that framework, and it's largely an output of many case studies. So we've built now a library of over a hundred different case studies across sectors, across countries. We pulled these companies apart, and we really used our skills as fundamental investors. So we're active. We're used to kind of getting into the weeds of these businesses. And looking for those patterns. And it's really patterns that we've been putting out. Sort of saying, well, you know, this company in, you know, the media sector in the US, we can see some, some principles that are beginning to emerge in the way it's constructed its business that are very similar to this, say, private equity business in Europe. So you wouldn't necessarily expect these comparisons to come through. And this is where you need to be a bit more nimble, I think, in general, in your thinking, move beyond, you know, all the benchmark hugging and the very low active share sort of products we see out there and, and think more holistically about companies. And it's from this 100 plus case studies that we were able to build up a set of universal principles. And these principles are what form our framework. And it's that framework that allows us to take that culture definition that's backed in empirical evidence and put it into investment context for, for our clients. So it seems to be from what you're saying that finance has kind of had an issue with measurement, should we say, with culture. And instead of trying to think round this, it seems like it's just been ignored as kind of a meaningless metric or even perhaps something which is a nuisance to get rid of. And instead, just look at kind of maximizing shareholder value, 
looking at very simple metrics like price to earnings and things like that. Because I'm guessing this is very similar to when we look at the very early modern economics, culture messes up otherwise very elegant maths. And I want to stick on this topic for a second, because I know we talked about this previously, that, that kind of human nature and the way we look at things, should we say, we have this tendency to overlook things which are hard to measure. And this was very much, I, you, you may well know this, but I'll, I'll very quickly run through this for the audience, that economics used to be part of the branch of philosophy until late 1700s, when they wanted to be more like a hard science, they wanted to be more of an empirical science. And so they, they broke away from philosophy and they, they came into their own field of inquiry. And with that, they had to tackle this issue of what I'm going to call kind of human illogic and, and kind of the way that we think about things, uh, which of course messed up their maths. And so they decided that they would just assume that everybody was rational and run with that. And you can produce some very nice, elegant, calculations and things and pretend you're forecasting things. Now, obviously, we, we all know sitting this side of the fence that that didn't really work out for them. But it's it's a pretty good example of how we ignore things. And the, and the bit I want to bring this around to, because I think there's a big overlap between what you're talking about with corporate culture and the mismeasurement of, of let's get let on to things like economic growth. So GDP is a, another classic example. Uh, you might be able to correct me on this. I'm going to guess at this. I kind of, I think GNP was invented by Kuznets in like 1930. It was about Great Depression anyway. And um, that was kind of, it wasn't ever really designed to be a measure of well-being. It was only ever designed to, to, to give policymakers an idea of how fast an economy is growing. But we come round to this idea of using it to try and uh, measure the well-being of everybody. I'm going to throw this back at you. I mean, firstly, do you, do you agree with that? And, and kind of what are your thoughts on this, this idea? Yes, is the summary. I very much agree with that. And I think we've, over the last couple of decades in particular, we've been thrust into a world where data seems to be the salvation to everything. So, you know, the privacy of data, the privacy of that collection process, building spreadsheets, feeling confident because you have the numbers behind you. Is something I continue to see and I see all around me, you know, not just in, in the finance world, but in broader sort of societal terms. And there's very much a, a kind of thrust towards, you know, almost focusing on, on only those things that we can put a number on. And, you know, as a mother of three children, actually, I feel very strongly on that sort of um, childcare element and, you know, the lack of that, of the value of childcare putting into the, the um, production sort of numbers because you know, it's very difficult to value. So because it's difficult, we don't price it. And, you know, I feel very conflicted about that. And I think that there's a lot we can do to sort of think much more as a society to kind of focus in on, on what it is we value and really think, well, what messages are we sending if we ignore those things? And I think it's an issue that Mark Carney actually raised in his Wreath lectures a couple of Christmas ago, where, you know, he really said that society is only looking at those things that it can price. And yet we're really looking at overlooking value and, and price and value just aren't the same thing. And, you know, we at 91 very much sort of would say, well, we're looking towards a sustainable future. And that, that sustainable future will see things like externalities is a term we would use. And that's a, you know, an economic term, but it's a term where we, we see ex uh, externalities as being priced in over time. 
but we want to start valuing them right now. So that's where we kind of depart from that economic model. And, you know, we have seen a significant degree of progress over the last 18 months in, in pricing in of one very specific form of externality, which is carbon. You know, we've seen significant momentum there. There's much more to come in that, but we see it as much broader than that. You know, that's just one sort of capital, if you like, of a much broader capital opportunity within externalities. And we just don't yet have the tools to be able to put metrics on these things. But we shouldn't shy away from them because they're really important. And I'm talking about things like how a business interacts with the society in which it operates. So, you know, how um, an employer treats its employees, you know, and, you know, actually, well, we could go down the Freeman route in in a minute. I'm, I'm sure you probably want to bring that up. But for example, Milton Freeman, he's, you know, the, the arch, um, he's, he's positioned as the arch um, proponent of this, you know, primacy of shareholder focus. But actually, if you go into his into his writings much more, he talks about it being, you know, in the long term, you have to think much more broadly. And that by focusing on shareholder value over the long term, you are de facto thinking about much broader the stakeholders as a as a whole. And an example he gives there is um, of the interaction of a dominant employee employer on a small community and how if that um, very dominant employer employs a significant number of a small community, then it makes sense for that employer to invest in the amenities of that community base. So, you know, everything's being slightly warped and it's all in this desire to put a number on it. And I, I just think we need to live with uncertainty and we need to live with this idea that qualitative insights can be just as powerful. And we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't overemphasize having a model behind everything. You know, we we can live with just having a framework if we if we can be consistent and we can be very holistic in the way we think about problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the point you make about I'm going to circle back to to Milton Friedman actually because um, that is an interesting point. And you're absolutely right that he is I'm, I'm going to say unfairly blamed for being this this proponent this this promoter of just companies should focus on profit. And I think it comes from, I'm going to butcher butcher the quote. Um, so please, everybody forgive me for this. But he said something along the lines of the social responsibility of corporations or businesses is to make profit, which sounds obviously like all he cared about was businesses making profit. But as you say, he was very much about in that profit mechanism is a feedback, isn't there? That a, a good company will only become a profitable good company if it makes a product and interacts with society in a good way. If it makes terrible products and actually really doesn't care about the society it's in, then surely it eventually loses its whole, whole customer base and doesn't really get very far. I want to come back, however, to just when we're talking about this mismeasurement idea, because I want to touch on something which I think is quite hot in, in the kind of the media at the moment. And that is something I know that Alex Edmonds has touched on as well in, in some of his work. And I bring this up because it's partly a controversial issue. And that is kind of the idea of looking at, at kind of pay inequality within the workplace. So not necessarily gender inequality, but just between what the average or typical worker earns compared to the CEO, because quite often this is thrown out there as a as a kind of an example of a company which 
doesn't have great culture because the CEO earns, I don't know, 300 times what the typical worker does. And that must show that they have a terrible culture within the, within the kind of the workspace. But Alex's work seems to suggest that that's, that's not a great metric to, to kind of really look at and pin much relevance on. Because I think it comes back to the, what you were talking about right at the start was this idea of growing the pie. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm not going to make any ethical assertions on how, on how much people should be paid, but I can look back on, on some of the work we've done to really look at case studies and how pe- employees and businesses feel about pay. And I, I think that's really my angle. And in building up this, this culture library and, and, you know, looking for those patterns, looking for those connections in comparing and contrasting different companies, one of the key principles that come out from that is is this idea of recognition. So, you know, I actually think a lot about non-financial recognition and how people kind of interact with each other and acknowledge each other's, you know, utility to the business. But but also financial recognition is a is a key part of that. And what we've discovered is that it's not about magnitude. It's about trend alignment and a sense of fairness. So they're the things that people really care about within businesses. If there's a sense that CEO pay is going up and employee pay is going down, that's that's the real delta of what matters. So that's where people really want to kind of unpick and will, will criticise and challenge. And that kind of very much taps into, into kind of Alex's work there. And much more broadly as well, I think you're kind of pulling out that, that zero sum sort of defunct notion, I guess, where, you know, it's much more about keeping everyone inspired and motivated within the business because that's how you grow the value of the overall pie. It's not a, you know, if this person gets that, well, that stakeholder doesn't get that. It's really reorientating that mindset and thinking about how the employees and all the stakeholders in that business interact to grow the pie as a whole. And I think the real kind of, if you are looking for, you know, to offset one party against another, it's the difference between being long-term and being short-term. So over the long term, there should be no conflict whatsoever between the interests of stakeholders and shareholders. And it's not one group of stakeholders against another. It's about long term stakeholders really against the the shorter term stakeholders. So, you know, if you really are investing in your CEO and paying them perhaps very handsomely, but over the long term, they are more than creating value for for that company, for for the financial shareholders, the, the owners of the business. But also broadly about for the stakeholders as a whole, well, you know, we see that as value creative and part of a sustainable future. Very good points you brought out there. So let's just come on to, uh, I want to track back to your career here, actually, and kind of just trace through how you ended up here. You've said that you kind of like to look behind the numbers, but kind of our UK audience might well be familiar with you and your name within the UK investing space, but we do go out to a global audience. So could you just piece together kind of your history and how you've ended up running the funds that you now do and just give us a very kind of quick snapshot about kind of how you're putting that fund together and the the companies that you're kind of looking in there because it has got a global mandate, hasn't it? Sure. Well, the, the quick history, I guess, is that I studied history. So that's perhaps a, you know, an interesting starting point. I'm not your typical financial economic graduate. I came into this industry straight, straight, it was straight from university, but it, 
it was largely through um, interacting with people beyond my sort of subject. I did a lot of sport when I was growing up. And for me, that kind of always thinking about, you know, lots of different topics all at once really was part of how I ended up in this industry. Um, I played a lot of water polo when I was at university. I interacted with quite a few, you know, older students or students who had slightly different sort of walks of life from me. And they, you know, when I kind of came into my second year, they were all applying for finance. And I was like, oh, I, I don't know what finance is really. So I, I applied to one of the, the big banks. And interestingly, I applied for um, a sales job, <laughs> which for any of my friends who, who you know, are familiar with me, I, I'm not not a salesperson. But I, I, I met someone, I was very fortunate in that interview process to meet one of the CIOs of, of one of the asset management businesses. And he sort of said to me, okay, well, you know, you're quite clearly not not suited to sales. But um, you know what, tell me what your most controversial opinion is. And he, he sort of said to me afterwards that I was the only person who he's really had who'd answered that question the way he hoped. So it, People either go down the line of, you know, um, super, I'm a perfectionist or, you know, I overthink the details or they give you something very kind of ethical and that's difficult to deal with in an interview. So something like abortion or euthanasia. And he sort of said, you know, well, actually, the way you talked about your topic um, was really interesting. It's really stimulating. And and he sort of said, you know what, from that interview and from being able to talk about that topic for one hour, that's why I put you in that job. And I kind of draw that that lesson out because it's about, it's not, this industry is about thinking, right? It's not about how well you understand your economic models. It's not about how well you can, you know, build a spreadsheet. It's really about that analytical process, having strong opinions, having the ability to piece together lots of different sort of um, nuggets of information. And that's why I think we need to think more broadly as an industry also about who we hire. And, you know, we're trying to hire at the moment and, we really want, that's the sort of mindset we're looking for, you know, that broad problem solving, but also prepared to take an angle, prepared to sort of take a position and, th- and think about things. So uh, that was a little detour there. So I obviously, I, I came into the industry from university and I've worked at a number of different financial institutions here. Given my one of my particular interests is, is culture, I've, you know, had quite an exposure to an array of different sorts of ways of running businesses all the way from very narrow guardrails, you must sort of stay in your lane situation to some more sort of toxic cultures. And, you know, it's been a real mix and it's been really insightful. And, you know, I've really enjoyed all the different sort of experiences I've I've had so far. I think the key thing that's brought me to 91 and and why I really feel at home at 91 and, you know, I I really love working here is, is that they really do do what they say they do. And, and, you know, that, that, that's really interesting to be part of. So they sort of talk about, you know, real real solutions to real world problems. They talk about this inhabit sort of invest advocate sort of messaging. And you see that internally. And it's a really great place to be and feel that kind of um, ownership, feel that utility and feel that ability to really be inspired and, and, and drive something you believe in. So with regard to the products that, that we're launching um I'm responsible for the global sustainable equity strategy here at N91. And it's been something I've, you know, really been able to put my heart and soul into, but also build on, you know, all the all the benefits that we have of this institutional setup, of, of the scale, of all the doors I've been able to open. You know, we've got a very um, tenured leadership team here. They've been here for, for you know, 15 plus years 
very much in, in those positions. And and having that founder-led culture that really permeates the whole of the business, it, it's really fantastic. And it's really very unusual in this industry. But crucially, that you know, they all know my name. They, they, they know my children's names as well. I've brought my children into the office. But they've been able to open up their networks. And, and it's, it's all bringing these sort of different sources. It's almost like a journalistic approach to thinking about um, finance. And it's given me these new perspectives. It's allowed me to really kind of build up this mosaic approach to thinking about the culture within businesses. And so what I do is pass all that all up and, and build it into a portfolio. So we think about that kind of uh, that view of a sustainable future where we think all of these externalities will over time be priced into, into share prices. We use culture as one of the key tools that we can identify the companies that thrive in that in that sustainable future. And then we use a very disciplined valuation investment approach to really form and develop that portfolio as an output. So when you're looking to basically uh, find companies to place in, in your portfolio, when we're talking about culture here, are we also talking about purpose? Is, is that right? Well, I, w- I would say no. So for me, culture is about workplace practices. It's about how a business is set up to best engage its employees. That's very different from purpose. So purpose, I think, is a misnomer. And, you know, it can be very much focused on rhetoric. The bigger businesses can spend more on, on getting the right marketing words into it. And, and it's not to say it's entirely redundant, but that's not something that my framework captures. One interesting thing you can do with purpose, though, and is think about how purpose pertains to the actual output of the company. So, for example, if you were to see a company that was talking about, you know, being very green, being really, you know, caring of the environment and thinking a lot about decarbonisation and, and, you know, reducing carbon emissions, and yet you saw them lobbying perhaps the government to kind of put for, you know, shale spending and whatnot, or, or you were able to dig into their carbon disclosure. So you can look at, um, for example, scope one, scope two, scope three, carbon emissions data for companies and you saw that going up you can say actually there's a quite a degree of lack of congruence between your purpose and actually what you're doing and so you know there's definitely an interesting area of study that we could do over time to sort of think more about that but the headline answer is no these are different things right now superb so you touched on there kind of some of we're going to get into esg or environmental social and governance for a second because that's a massive move forward in certainly in the investment space we're seeing in the policy space cop 26 is about to happen in, in scotland and we're seeing a, a massive amount of movement not, not just from investment flows but changes in society changes in spending habits and this is all happening now one of the questions i've got for you is is culture well captured in those metrics because, of course, if we kind of split them apart into E, S and G, then surely that social responsibility is, is there crossover there or does it not quite capture the culture you're talking about? No, it doesn't capture it. There's some value. So, for example, some ESG data agencies are beginning to sort of report things like diversity, so the number of women at the board. But let's walk through that example and you'll see why I think there's much more we can do. So... If we look at a company and it sort of says, well, you know what, we've got 30% of of women on our board. We've dramatically improved that number over the last five years. We've gone from 10% to 30%. Aren't we great? ESG, you know, agency might might well say, yes, that is great. So 
but I care a bit more. So I want to know, well, actually, how do those women in the room feel? Are they just add-ons? Are they, have they been appointed as non-independent directors and therefore quite removed from the underlying company? Have they just been sort of put on the board and they, they have, you know, a portfolio of um, directorships, which in itself is an interesting diversion for why a lot of women end up in that, in that position. But that's probably a topic for another day. But what I really care about is how those women are included in business discussions. So I don't care primarily, well, I'm interested in the fact they have a seat at the table, but I want to know how they are able to use that seat and how they are able to inform and participate in discussions. Because too often we see that, you know, we must solve for this problem because the problem they're solving for is getting that diversity stat that they can report. But actually, the real value to society and the real value to, you know, what we ought to really care about is that better decisions are being made in that boardroom. So we really need to move beyond just focusing on the what, which is what the diversity is, into thinking much more about the how, which is what inclusion is. So, you know, and that's a topic I really care about for women in finance much more broadly, because typically we we don't have too much of a problem with attracting women. So if you think about graduate intakes, particularly to the larger banks, you know, the split between men and women isn't so bad. If you move up, if you kind of, accelerate 15 years um, further forward in your career and you know you kind of get to my sort of age there are very few women around and to me it's becoming this problem of inclusion it's a problem of keeping women in the workforce making the you know the the working environment work for those women letting them feel they have a voice making it useful and relevant for them to return after career breaks or taking you know time out of the office to have children we need to think much more broadly about that and none of that sort of whole kind of problem is captured in that headline diversity stat. So we can use some metrics and maybe they do give us, you know, signposts in the right direction. But we need to think much more broadly about what we're trying to solve for and what the best way of understanding the output of, that, of, of solving for that problem would be. So if it doesn't quite capture in the ESG metrics, is there a crossover between corporate culture when then when we start looking at things like sustainability net zero goals and and kind of climate impact is there is there a more of a crossover between those two ideas very much so so i see those businesses with strong corporate culture typically think long term so if they're valuing their employee base they're probably thinking more broadly about stakeholders as a whole So that means they're much more likely to embed externalities in the way they think about, you know, value creation, but also enhance externalities. So what that means is that those businesses with strong culture are more likely to be nimble in response to risk and more nimble to be more likely to be, you know, to to follow opportunity as well. So what you see is businesses with strong culture embed and enhance an approach to thinking about sustainability. And to give you one example, if we think about the crossover of culture and climate, and this is something we've done a bit of work on recently, those businesses with strong culture think long term, and therefore they're already thinking about climate risk. So we've got quite a number of different examples I could pull upon, but there's a Canadian insurer, for example, that's been thinking really well about talent rotation in its business. It calls it its secret source. 
And that's allowed it to build up these fantastic networks, peer networks of people talking across the business. And that really elevated climate very early to the kind of executive level. And the reason this is significant is because they then put climate into their risk systems significantly before their peers. So you had this kind of permeation of culture or of connections across business. You had people moving around the business. You had people interacting, you know, using these informal networks to talk. It elevates problems early and it elevates opportunities early. So you have these corporations thinking about climate before its peers and embedding those into their business model. So you end up with culture almost as a way to think about climate risk, but also climate opportunity. And and that's where we see a lot of interesting examples beginning to bubble up. So it sounds like that the, the companies that you're looking at and the ones with good corporate culture, as you say, look further down the road. And it definitely has, certainly from the, the research you quoted from kind of Alex Edmonds, kind of it's it makes for better business. Now, when we're kind of bringing this back to policy and things like that, would you therefore advocate that uh, there should be more regulation, that there should be somehow policy measures to make companies have better culture? And is that something which you can actually do? Can you make a business have better culture? Or does this come back to companies would simply just try and achieve certain KPIs like you were talking about with the amount of women on the board and like we were talking about earlier with kind of the GDP and uh, other metrics which don't really tell the full story? I think it's very difficult to regulate for these things. So if we don't even have a way to measure, let alone assess a lot of these of what we're trying to capture here, regulating for it will be a long time away. One interesting sort of observation is that regulation typically um, self-selects for larger companies. So, for example, if you look at the Dodd-Frank legislation that came out in the US, the original document, I think, was 848 pages long and it swelled to something like two and a half thousand or, or even more when it was you know, finally published. And, and that degree of, of, of paper almost, but content, really, it's really difficult for smaller companies to, to deal with, to process, to respond to. So you end up with a situation that self-selects for the existing companies. It self-selects for the companies that are able to spend um, significantly on dealing with legislation and responding. And, you know, it has slightly unintended consequences, I'd say. I think what we should do as a society is, is is think more broadly about this multi-stakeholder approach, you know, gain more investment understanding on it, gain more client education on it so clients know what they're looking for. So we need to sort of move it to much more perhaps of a demand pool. We, we need it, the clients to sort of say, well, actually, I care about what my investments are doing on a 10-year, 20-year, 50-year perspective. And, and we need investors to listen to that. We need investors to say, oh, you know, I'm not going to chase, you know, chase my bonus in the next quarter. I'm, I'm thinking about how I can create a long-term career serving those client demands. And, and that's the shift we need to really see accelerate. And we're, see, we're beginning to see it in climate. We're beginning, you know, the, all the noise that's coming out of COP and all the attention that we're, we, we are indeed playing to that. But we need it to be broader. We can't just focus on on the pricing of carbon. We need to think about how we price and value as a society, communities, suppliers, customers, employees. It's so broad. We can't regulate on it for everybody, but we can make steps towards thinking about it and make steps towards elevating it in the consciousness of the investment community and their clients. 
Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and sharing your time and delving into how corporate culture impacts so many aspects of our lives. For those of you who want to find out more about Stephanie and the work she does, then head over to 91.com. That's the words 91. And in the search box, simply type Stephanie Nevin and you'll find both her full bio as well as more information on culture as a driver of sustainable alpha. You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.